Well, good morning, Grace Commons. It's wonderful to look out and see you, and uh, unfortunately, Dave gave away my entire sermon. Good job, Dave. But he's right. Today is a Sunday that's all about John the Baptist. John the Baptist's entire life was foretold by the prophets before him. When he arrives on the scene, the people of Israel saw in his flesh, this is what a prophet looks like. This is what Isaiah or Malachi or Jeremiah must have looked like. And they had waited so long for another prophet, another voice from God. Remember, they had absolute necessity of hearing God speak through the prophets. It's part of the nation of Israel. And they had been waiting for 400 years. And it was a terrible time to wait because they were under an oppressive foreign ruler for the entire time. And now, as John arrives on the scene, it's the worst rule of all. It's Roman rule. Luke records all this in his very careful historical way in the first chapter of his gospel as he tells the story of his parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and his cousin Mary as they go back and forth through these two momentous pregnancies. So let's look at that story in summary. This is Malachi, the prediction I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. And then Luke 1, 68, the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hands of all who hate us. To show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, John the Baptist, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation, through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come down to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet in the path of peace. 
Malachi says, I am sending a messenger. All of the preparation that will come to a climax on our, at our Christmas Eve service is summarized in Malachi's prophecy. But first we have to get through this eccentric guy named John the Baptist who turns up every year on the second Sunday of Advent to spoil our Christmas. I mean, he's a messenger of doom and gloom. And we all want, just like the children, to get right past this part, right, and get to the good news about the baby Jesus. John the Baptist, there he is. There's lots of paintings in medieval and Renaissance period, and they're all, he just has a sour face. He didn't seem like a happy guy. But he was blessed by God, and he, his, the prophecy of his parents was that he was going to be a mighty, he's going uh, to be the preparer of the mighty Savior in the house of his servant David. This is what we're waiting for, this beautiful painting from Cameroon. We're waiting for Christmas Eve, but first we have to go through the preparation. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. the tender mercy of our God. This is what we're waiting for. Beautiful painting from Kenya. The world, around the world, people are preparing to celebrate in song, in worship, in art, in presence, in trees. Christmas is coming to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of the peace. So this is what we want. We want Christmas Eve. We want garlands and presents and great food and families gathering and friends coming over. But first, we have to get through John. So John the Baptist comes, and here's what he has to say. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. There he is. John in the wilderness. He went into all the region about the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Four words, simple sermon, baptism, repentance, forgiveness, and sins. Now we know what baptism is. It's water being poured over us in the sacrament of baptism. It's the outer sign of the inner work of the Spirit. But what about this word repentance? Literally the Greek word John uh, that's used by Luke to describe John's message is metanoia. It means to change one's mind. Meta, change, mind, noia. But it's far more than a change of mind. Repentance literally means to turn around from going in one direction with our will and our desires to turn 180 degrees and face the opposite direction. But pastor, isn't repentance over with? Didn't we do that when we got saved, when we first responded to the gospel message? That's baptism. But repentance is a lifelong process. 
the obvious sins are probably gone in our lives because we have been following Jesus. But there's deeper sins inside of us. Bruce Larson explains in a startling metaphor, he says that some of us spend our entire lives listening to voices from the basement. Now, in our rental house, I'm going to skip ahead, this is our basement stairs. It's a scary place down there, and apparently my wife tells me there are mice down there. Now, I haven't seen a mouse yet, but there's a lot of traps in our house because that's my job. That's the basement. But Larson's talking about a metaphorical basement, down in the basement of our soul. And it's where we store those harsh words that we learned as children. Now, we each have our own voices, but it could be something like, you're not good enough, you're not pretty enough, you're not smart enough, you're not ambitious enough. We each have our different version, but we're all hobbled to one degree or another by those voices from our past. We've tried to rise above those voices. We've built our lives, and some of us have succeeded at overcoming those messages beyond our wildest dreams, while others are still struggling. It's the human condition to hear these voices. In a few years ago, Adele was on a world tour, and two members of our church in Florida uh, were about to have a baby. And guess who got the tickets? We did. We got to hear Adele in Miami at American Airlines Arena. And in one of her songs, A Million Years, she captures these basement voices. So I'd like to play that for you, the, just the chorus. I know I'm not the only one who regrets the things they've done. We all struggle with regret, and everyone thinks it's only them. Some of the most outwardly successful people found their success in part because those basement voices haunted them, and they worked night and day to prove the voices are wrong. But the voices can seep up through the floorboards, and haunt us our whole life. So we need a gospel powerful enough to deal with our basements. And John brings it. He says, He is the one, the voice crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist brings the, the voices up so that God can deal with them and heal us. 
John says, don't regret, repent. Every time we hear those basement voices, we need to turn around and look up at the metaphorical balcony. And what do we hear from that balcony? We hear a voice of grace that says, your sins are forgiven. I love you. I am well pleased with you. That's the only voice, that balcony voice, that can drown out the basement voices of our lives. It's the voice of our Heavenly Father. And He's pleased with us not because of what we've done or haven't done, but because of what Jesus has done on the cross. God has found us in the wilderness of our lives where we were seeking to find hope and peace and wholeness and forgiveness. And he's reached down and brought us home. Grace, amazing grace, is born out of God's love for us. And every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, the rough ways made smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Salvation is what we need. And John is here to announce it and prepare us for it. And it's coming. It's coming on Christmas Eve. But first, we have to stop trying to fix ourselves. John's gospel helps us see how wide the gap, how deep the basement is, and nothing we can do has any hope of helping us find peace apart from that. So instead of going back to the basement or listening to those voices, do a turnaround. Do that 180 and repent. And what you will find is salvation. You will find the message announced by angels and witnessed by shepherds. Jesus comes into our lives on Christmas a babe in a manger, but with arms wide open, welcoming sinners so that he can save us. There's no stairway to the balcony. We can't climb up. Grace is when God climbs down into the basement and carries us up. Jesus, the Savior, comes to earth on that first advent as a humble servant, and through him God offers grace. Grace means that there is Nothing you can do to make God love you any less. And what will drive you crazy is to find out that there is nothing, there isn't anything you can do to make God love you anymore either. When it comes to the love of God, the salvation brought by Jesus, all we can do is receive it and at long last discover the life that makes us whole that brings us peace and healing. This is the blessing that we've been yearning for since the day we were born. This is the voice of absolution. It's the voice that quiets the basement. In our baptism, we who follow Jesus do not baptize to wash away sins. That is hopeless. When I baptize someone, I can't do anything for them. I can only proclaim a baptism of forgiveness for the repentance of sin. 
And like every human being before us, we continue to sin. So we are baptized so that we can continue to repent and be forgiven and to identify ourselves with our Savior Jesus as people who live by grace and grace alone. Craig Barnes puts it this way, conversion is the lifelong process of turning away from our plans and turning toward God's maddening, disruptive creativity. In a recent sermon, I talked about my grandfather, Joseph Edward Baer. Here he is as a young Marine in 1915, before he went off to Europe to fight in World War I. He was a hard worker, an ambitious young man who worked his way through high school and then enlisted in the Marines. And when he was discharged in 1919, he went back to Galveston, Texas, and became a salesman in an office supply company. He met and married his sweetheart, my mama, Marguerite. And while raising my dad and my aunt and uncle, my grandparents moved quite a bit. New Orleans, Atlanta, Jackson, back to Atlanta. And finally, just before World War II began, they moved to San Francisco. Now, I didn't know my grandfather during any of these parts of his journey. My first memories were when he was this age. He had recently retired, and he had a vision. We are going to buy a house in the same town that our grandchildren live in. And he couldn't pull it off completely because there were three grandchildren in New York, but he did pretty well with seven in our little town north of San Francisco. And not just a house in the same town, they bought a house a block and a half from my elementary school. I have wonderful memories of my grandparents. And when I was about 12, I learned that it wasn't all just a gift. He said, Randy, I've got a job for you. And he introduced me to gardening. He was a master gardener. He was in the California Fuchsia Society. He grew prize-winning roses, vegetables, an apple tree, and I got to take care of all of it for 75 cents an hour. Now, my grandmother was just the sweetest southern lady you could know, and so she would take pity on me. And when I was overworking on a Saturday, there would be lemonade at 10 a.m. sharp, and then lunch, and sometimes hand-cranked ice cream and apple pie. Those are wonderful memories of my childhood, but my most powerful memory came when I was in college. My grandmother was diagnosed with dementia and began to need more and more care. My grandfather, grandfather changed. He became her daily caregiver. All the energy that had gone into building a successful career and then into his many hobbies was focused on caring for her. He spent his time cleaning, and he learned how to cook for the first time. And he took care of my grandmother, every one of her needs. And one weekend, I was home from college, and my grandfather called me and said, I, I need a break. Your aunt is taking care of Mama. Why don't you come over to your parents' house, and we'll finish this fence I've been working on trying to get done. So he worked all morning, and then he said, I'm tired, 
I'm going to go home and take a nap. He had a heart attack. He didn't wake up. I never saw him again. And I've often wondered what was going on inside him. I had been a Christian for two years. I had shared my faith with him, my excitement about Jesus, who I'd met in college. And I wondered what was going on in his soul. For most of his life, he was a nominal Christian at best. He'd, he was kind of a backsliding Christian. His great-grandparents were Presbyterian, but he grew up a Baptist. But his character was for sure. It was formed more by his upbringing, his time in the Marines, and his climb up the corporate ladder. My dad told me he was a strict father, and there was always a harshness about him. But he changed. As he grew older and faced suffering, and especially when my grandmother needed full-time care, Papa repented. He found that he needed God. He needed Jesus, and he changed. His soul was softer, and he became gentler and kinder. In his book, Sacred Fire, a vision for deeper human and Christian maturity, Ronald Rollheiser explains that as we go through various stages of life, from youth to young adulthood, middle age, and so on, not only do our bodies change, but our souls change as well. Rollheiser writes, once the sheer pulse of life so strong in us during our youth begins to be tempered by the weight of our commitments, and the grind of the years, more of our sensitivities begin to break through. And we sense more and more how we have been wounded and how life has not been fair to us. New demons then emerge, bitterness, anger, jealousy, and the sense of having been cheated. Disappointment cools the fiery energies of our youth and our enthusiasm for life begins to be tempered for, by bitterness and anger as we struggle to accept our limits and make peace with a life that now seems too small and unfair. Where once our sympathies were with the prodigal son, they are now more and more with his older brother. As we age, we begin more and more to struggle with God. I witnessed that in my grandfather. And recently it hit me, I will be his age when he retired next year. So as I reread these Advent passages about John the Baptist and hear again the good news that he preached, I realize I am repenting and receiving forgiveness of sins far differently than when I was younger. And that makes sense. These invitations from the Bible in the gospel meet us in very different ways at different times of our life. But one thing is the same. For every disciple, every follower of Jesus, our destiny is to be conformed into his image. The fruits of the Spirit become fully manifest in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. But it's that daily process of taking up our cross and following Jesus that changes us. So bring all the stuff in your basement out 
and allow God to meet you there and to heal you. It takes a lifetime, but it's a journey that's worth enduring on. It's a long obedience, Eugene Peterson says, in the same direction. And the good news that John brought and Jesus proclaimed and lived is that even though we are sinners and we fail, even though we have wounds in our soul that take a lifetime to heal, in the end we will be made whole. We will see him face to face. We are being forgiven. We are finding inner healing. And this is salvation. This is the message of Christmas. As we turn and face the balcony of God's grace and receive grace upon grace, a balm for our souls, and the peace that comes from knowing that God is with us, Emmanuel. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for this good news, this gospel that John brought. Baptism, repentance, forgiveness of sins, salvation that goes to the very depths of our soul. And thank you that that's the present that was underneath the tree this Christmas, the offer of hope and healing and the sure conviction that one day you will return in the second advent and you will make all things right. And we will see you and live with you for eternity. We're grateful as we pray in the name of our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.